Welcome to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Inside the IC. On today's show, we'll take a look at how intelligence agencies are approaching open source intelligence, or OSINT. Depending on how you define it, that's a rapidly expanding world of social media feeds, commercial satellite imagery, cell phone videos, and other internet-derived information. And it allows professional and amateur analysts alike to investigate events happening around the world. Organizations like Bellingcat have used this kind of information to extensively document Russia's invasion of Ukraine, mapping incidents of civilian harm, debunking Russian disinformation, and investigating the use of cluster munitions and other weapons. But the intelligence community has been slower to adopt new approaches to open source intelligence. A January report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies found the community has struggled to even define OSINT beyond the classic definition of publicly available media and press reporting. But there are signs that the approach to open source could be changing. During an appearance at CSIS last week, Stacey Dixon, the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, said the IC is thinking hard about how it uses open source intelligence. It's interesting. Within the community, I think we have been thinking about open source information and how it actually fits into the intelligence uh, enterprise for, for quite a while. There's a lot of really useful information out there. And so figuring out how do we legally, with keeping in mind privacy and civil liberties, how do we bring in the information that's useful and see how it can complement the classified information we have in terms of being able to provide insights to our customers. So it's something that we've been thinking about for a while. I think the awareness right now is how much is available for the public to see, whether it is some of the companies putting imagery out on their websites for all to take a look at or highlighting it. And they're, they're very vocal as well, talking with the media about what you can see from their, the, the information they've collected. It, it puts us into a different place where we are not the sole ones to have access to that information. And there's a lot other, of other people now looking at what's happening around the world. Again, that's Stacey Dixon, Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, speaking at CSIS last week. And to help understand the intelligence community's approach to open source and where it could go from here, I'm joined by two experts from the Belfer Center at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Lauren Zabrek is Executive Director of the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center. Lauren, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Justin. Great to be here with you. And Maria Robson is the Program Coordinator of the Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center. Maria, great to have you on. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess to start things off, Lauren, you have experience within the intelligence community. You're an Air Force intelligence officer and also worked at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And I guess I'm just wondering, why has there been a general aversion to using open source intelligence in the intelligence community historically? Well, Justin, I don't know if I would call it an aversion so much as a result of several different issues. And so if you take a look at the report from CSIS that Emily Harding published a few months back looking at open source intelligence and really recommending um, the use of AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, to help analysts actually harness the power of artificial intelligence. She goes into a number of points about how this is an issue of policy, an issue of technology, of security, culture, business processes, and things like that. So I would say it's not you know, an aversion. Analysts want to do a good job. They want to be able to use information in their analyses, but there are a lot of different issues that I think the community and, and even Congress really need to address. 
Yeah, and really quickly, what would you say are maybe the top two or three of those issues, whether they're low-hanging fruit or sort of harder challenges that need to be addressed in the long term? Well, I mentioned Congress, and I think they have an especially important role here as the oversight body for the intelligence community. Um, And this is, you know, everything from setting budgets and how an agency can utilize, you know, their particular budget within a cycle and and what can be spent on and, you know, and also the requirements as well, right? If, If there's a certain requirement that Congress sets and, you know, and if an agency has to meet that or not, right? So, so some rigid things that I think should be re-looked at. And then moreover, things around, you know, re-sort of examining the laws around it. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we should, you know, for instance, get rid of EO1233, the executive order that really governs intelligence oversight. But, you know, when we're thinking about publicly available information and how an intelligence analyst can actually use it while protecting information, while adhering to the law and making sure that Americans are protected too, I think those are some that we should consider. Got it. And Maria, you've written about how intelligence tradecraft has rapidly expanded in the private sector over the last couple of decades. And they, of course, rely on open source. There aren't corporations that are receiving a whole lot of classified information. What lessons can be learned from how big companies use open source these days to, to assess risks and other issues? Thank you very much for the question, Justin. Yes, we've seen a rapid expansion of private sector intelligence teams, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine. There's been an expansion in terms of hiring and also in terms of the scope of intelligence teams. And as you indicated, they're relying almost exclusively on open source information due to the nature of their corporations. There are some exceptions. There are analysts within private sector corporate intelligence teams who retain their clearances when they transition from the government to the private sector. However, in interviewing them and speaking with them, what I often have found is that those clearances aren't providing those nuggets of gold that allow them to do their jobs and keep their corporations safe. It's actually the open source intelligence. So that is partly because the nature of the questions are often different, but a lot of it is just the power of open source information in a way that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. And I would say a distinction that we see here with public and private is the extent of the training on open source intelligence analysis that exists in the private sector that doesn't necessarily exist in the government because of the access to classified information. And so one of the things I think we need to see is learning from those private sector models in terms of how to train analysts and how to effectively take advantage of all the open source intelligence available. Yeah, and I think it would be useful to understand a little bit about the greater access to open source information that exists today can you talk a little bit about how that has evolved? What, what's available to these companies? What are they training on or what are they training to do to actually be able to take advantage of to assess these different risks? I'd like to draw a distinction, Justin, in terms of what we're talking about with OSINT or open source intelligence. And the first answer to your question, I think, is distinguishing between the types of open source information that have always been available, such as newspapers. We see dedicated foreign newspaper intelligence collection in the CIA tracing back to the 1940s. And so that type of open source intelligence is not new. However, what is new is the internet, is social media, and the 
speed and scope of available information. And then the second distinction I wanted to draw is between open source intelligence and commercially sourced intelligence. So the Palantirs, the all sorts of companies that are collecting and selling large swaths of data. And this is a distinction where I think the terminology is still up in the air, still being under debate, but there's some talk increasingly about the idea of distinguishing for the IC between open source, so social media data, for example, and then commercially sourced intelligence that the IC could purchase instead of trying to replicate and collect in-house. And so corporations also are making that distinction and they're drawing on consultancies and vendors and purchasing data sets. And then some of the services actually allow you to integrate. So I believe Jane's and others do this where corporations can then add their own data into the data set alongside the commercially collected information, which is much more powerful. But for the government, there would be questions and classifications and restrictions and firewalls to get around in order to do that. Although to some extent, I believe that's happening, I'm not sure to the full extent, and Lauren could probably speak to that further. But I would draw those distinctions when it comes to the types of information that's being collected and how it's changed over time. Yeah, Lauren, did you want to add anything to that? What I will say is, you know, building on what Maria is talking about, it's this issue of how to most effectively use, understand, make sense of, derive insights from this vast amount of, of publicly available data that's ever growing. And so that is, you know, a, a function of all those issues that I, you know, had described earlier, but that are, you know, really described in this report from CSIS. So the policy, the security, culture, technological and business process um, issues. But especially where, you know, Maria's done this work to really look into it, I think the, the private sector does do this faster for good reason, right? There's there's obviously less laws and rules and constraints around them. Um, but I will say there's also sort of no, I think, norms or analytical standards that say the intelligence community does actually adhere to and, and you know, really tries to follow basically. And so there's this sometimes this conception that the intelligence community has to compete with the private sector. And I, and I don't think so, right? Because the private sector will do you know, this work on the outside and, and, you know, for good reason, it'll be very important, but it allows, I think, the IC to focus on very specific intelligence questions, but it can also bonus off of the technology and the tradecraft and, and things like that, while, you know, potentially doing a little bit more standard setting as far as, you know, those, those norms and, and analytical standards. But I will say this, they do have to compete for talent. And that I think is a perennial issue um, that the intelligence community has to really address. Yeah, um, Maria, you mentioned the training that's available on open source to the private sector these days. I assume that the intelligence community might be able to take advantage of the same or similar training. Do either of you have any idea to what extent they actually do take advantage of, of that kind of updated training on, on, on this issue, or are there barriers there? I'll speak to this first, and Lauren, please add on if you would like. Yes, there is synergy, and there are areas in which the same tools and techniques would apply, and there are all sorts of openly available training courses, both um, at cost and even free training. I believe Bellingcat has guides online as to how to conduct OSINT 101, which are available to anyone. And I would imagine that 
in or out of the IFC analysts would be looking at those types of resources. However, I can't speak to the extent to which this actually happened within, within the intelligence community. What I would add is that often when comparing analytical training inside and outside of the IC, so in the IC and in the private sector, there are differences that emerge in terms of the use and the intent and the objectives and using it in business is fundamentally different. A lot of the questions being asked are quite different than the questions being asked for national security. So those are the elements just in which I think the analytical training would and should diverge. However, in terms of how to use the tools and how to validate sources online, there are all sorts of areas that would overlap. And again, we're speaking with Lauren Zabrick and Maria Robson from Harvard University's Belfer Center about how the intelligence community can better approach open source intelligence or OSINT. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. And welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Lauren Zabrick and Maria Robson from Harvard University's Belfer Center. We're talking about how the intelligence community can better take advantage of open source intelligence. You know, structurally within the intelligence community, um, we know that the DNI's open source enterprise was redesignated and incorporated into the CIA's Directorate of Digital Innovation in 2015. I believe the CIA is the functional manager for open source. Are there structural issues, do you think, Lauren, within the intelligence community in terms of in terms of how open source is? You mentioned standards, how open source how there how there are standards around open source, how it's structured within the community and, and how it's shared across the community, perhaps. I don't know if you can speak to that. Well, I will say a couple things. First, it's been a while since I left the community. So I left back in 2016. So a lot has changed. And, you know, I can't necessarily speak to, you know, things that are actually happening within the IC at this point. But one thing that I have spoken about is issue of culture and really around things like incentives, right? And this, I think, transcends the bounds of the government, even, you know, across industry and things like that. And that's really looking at the ways that people are empowered and incentivized to, you know, take a problem and look at all different facets of it and try to to solve or at least come up with new insights and, and analyses based on that. And so I think that continues to, again, I, I can't say for sure, but that's something that I would address from a from a culture standpoint. Got it. And then in terms of an, an all source approach to intelligence. Do either of you have have any recommendations for how intelligence agencies could better 
use the open source tools that are available to them today? Or do you have any observations on on perhaps how they've been able to advance in that area? Well, one particular area, and this is something, again, um, addressed in the CSIS report, is just the ability to actually make sense of all this data. And so potentially using things like artificial intelligence and machine learning um, as a way to do that, to structure data and, and to help analysts make uh, make sense of it. So, you know, the, the report goes into a potential solution called OSCAR, but I, I think that is a, a key issue. Maria, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what Lauren just mentioned in terms of making sense of big data across the intelligence community, across government and organizations writ large as we're in kind of this this moment um, with with advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning. From a private sector intelligence perspective, though, are there any lessons that we can draw on in terms of how they combine different forms of intelligence, all different data to get after the, their objectives? It's a great question, Justin. Thank you. I think the answer goes back to something Lauren alluded to in terms of not trying to do everything and trying to replicate things that are being done well elsewhere, but instead specializing and really allocating scarce analytical resources to the most pressing needs where a human analyst is going to add the most value. So part of the answer there is investing in data science, data analytical skills, in conveying to prospective entrants to the intelligence profession, whether it's private or public, those types of coding skills, whether it's R or Python or other data analytical tools, Tableau and others, that will add value and be useful. And then part of it is that leveraging of data elsewhere that's already being collected. It's already being done quite well by others instead of trying to do it all in-house. And so in the private sector, effective teams are leveraging existing capabilities from external vendors or service providers or other intelligence firms that are specializing in providing this value with the caveat that then you need somebody in-house to vet the quality of the information, determine this is actually valid and valuable. So that's one example where there's a lot of variation. Not all firms are doing this effectively, but the ones that are doing it are really focusing on where you need that human analytical value add and where you can leverage existing capabilities from a variety of sources. Yeah, one, one issue that I've heard officials mention when it comes to open source is that they understand the rigor that I see analysts put into their products, but they don't necessarily understand the rigor that where it was put into analysis that comes from an open source uh, source, whatever that might be. To what extent is there a good way to measure open source rigor today? Is it just a matter of figuring out after the fact whether that analysis was actually spot on or whether it was flawed? Or is there rigor that's starting to percolate within the open source community that, that you could point to? There's huge variation still. And there is a trend in a positive direction. And what some of the best firms in the space do is they are transparent with their methodology. They're transparent to the extent that they can be without jeopardizing sources of how they're collecting their information and they build relationships with their clients. So there is that level of trust and understanding, but there is huge variation. It is a concern uh, in terms of vetting the quality. And one thing that I've observed with some teams, which goes back to Lauren's point about collaboration with the government is there are many public private partnerships that security and intelligence practitioners in the private sector leverage where they meet with 
public officials and build those relationships. And one of the main value adds that I found when I was surveying participants in these networks to determine why they were participating was it wasn't the intelligence itself, it was the validation, it was confirmation, it was ensuring they were on the same page. So to the extent that can happen, that isn't necessarily about source setting, that's more about the overarching analysis of what you think you're seeing from the data, but having those active, effective public-private partnerships can help with confirmation and validation. All right. And, and you know, one of the hooks into this conversation is, is, of course, the current conflict in Ukraine, which has been playing out maybe unlike any other conflict in, in the open source, quote unquote, on social media and in spaces like that. And, and then one thing that has happened during this conflict has been the declassification of information by the intelligence community to an extent that perhaps we haven't seen before how does this kind of mesh together, this issue of taking advantage of what's available in the open source, what's already out there in the open source and what folks understand or believe they understand about the world with declassification and using the information that the intelligence community has on hand to kind of meet the objectives of national security? Uh, Lauren, that's a a long winding question, but I don't know if that that makes sense, if that resonates at all with what you're thinking. Yeah. So, and I'll let Maria speak to more of the um, specifics around uh, open source intelligence around Ukraine, as that's not been something that I, I, you know, tracked in depth. But I will say this, the administration's decision to rapidly declassify and share intelligence about the war in Ukraine um, has been unprecedented. And what I think it's allowed uh, the administration do is help to shape that narrative, especially in this conflict, which has a really big component of information operations to it. I mean, that is such a big part of the Russians' playbook. And so then to kind of meet that, you know, challenge and, and you know, start to take control of that narrative and, and while also um, aiding Ukraine in doing so, I think has been such a a great thing to see, not only for this particular conflict, but I think it has even broader implications, you know, as as we sort of look to the future. Because I, I, I do think if the intelligence community is more transparent, if the government is more transparent in information and, and you know, getting people to understand, you know, what what's happening without obviously showing sources and, and methods and things like that, will I think go a long way towards, you know, dispelling some some myths and conspiracy theories and, and hopefully elevating trust in our institutions and our government. Maria, did you have anything you wanted to add there? I would mostly just echo what Lauren said regarding the proactive declassification of intelligence by the US and UK to an unprecedented level and the use of this to actually influence the Russians to take away the element of surprise to predict the playbook before the Russians acted on the playbook, which has been immensely powerful. We've also seen the use of OSINT by non-governmental actors such as Bellingcat, again, to a profound extent, although there are instances of this historically, including recent history that I don't think we're as aware of or as familiar with. And Amy Ziegart has a recent book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, in which she talks about this in detail, including the example of public imagery experts on their spare time who weren't government employees who identified a uranium enrichment facility in North Korea through imagery. So there are examples out there where we've seen this type of 
proactive private actor approach of revealing information publicly, but certainly not to the extent we've seen with Ukraine. And again, that was Maria Robson. She's the program coordinator of the Intelligence Project at Harvard University's Belfer Center. We also spoke with Lauren Zabrick, executive director of the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center. We discussed how open source intelligence is evolving and what the intelligence community can do to keep up. For more on this story, check out federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Justin Doubleday. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.